Now, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Things are intensifying. They're heating up for Paul as he's traveled back to Jerusalem and um, finding himself in harm's way, I think it's fair to say. Acts 22, verse 30. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, why Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, that's referring to the Roman tribune or the Roman commanding officer we heard about last week, he unbound him, unbound Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council, meaning the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council, to meet. And he brought Paul down and set Paul before them. Chapter 23, verse 1, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now those who stood by, Paul said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees, they acknowledge them all. Well, then a clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, the other day I read an interesting article about a very quick-thinking, a very fast-thinking mother. I think typical of mothers. Mothers are often very quick thinkers. This happened a few years ago when Grenfell Tower in London went up in flames, completely subsumed in flames. It was the worst residential fire in the UK since World War II. When the fire broke out in this tower, which was 24 stories tall, 
Families were told, stay put for rescue. Until 90 minutes later when firefighters got there and said, flee the building immediately. Unfortunately, by that point, their front door was far too hot to touch. And the exterior windows were so hot, they were bubbling. Things were very, very much in danger for them. So the mom, this incredible quick-thinking mother, immediately turned on all the faucets in the bathroom, flooding the entire apartment, which bought them time and may very well have saved their lives. Kudos to this quick-thinking mother. Firefighters eventually reached the family at 3 a.m. and brought them all to safety. I don't know about you, but that sounds like quick thinking to me. And it was quick thinking, very quick thinking, on the part of the Apostle Paul that most assuredly saved his life in our passage today. Let's look at our text, and we'll see today an extraordinary providence unfold. So chapter 2, verse 30, printed in your bulletin. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he, now the he there, like we said before, the ESV translates this term for commanding officer, it translates it as tribune. But this is the Roman officer in charge. Later in the same chapter, chapter Luke actually tells us his name. Do you remember his name? Claudius Lysias. Luke is a first-rate historian, and he's sharing with us the very name of the tribune or the commanding officer who's presiding over these affairs, Claudius Lysias. That's the he here. Verse 30 again. On the next day, desiring to know the, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he, Claudius Lysias, this commanding officer, he unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council, this is the Jewish high court, to meet, to convene. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, if you weren't here last week, just the briefest of backgrounds and summaries of what happened last week. Paul had come back to Jerusalem to bring this gift from the Gentile churches to the Jewish churches that were having a difficult time. He's worshiping in the temple. When Jews from Asia, okay, Paul was in Ephesus, which was Asia, for about three years. Jews from Ephesus, or that part of the world, were also in the temple worshiping, and they recognized Paul. And they screamed out to everybody who could hear in the temple compound that this is the man that is going all over the world teaching our people to forsake the customs of our people, which wasn't true, but that was the accusation they were levying against Paul, and that he brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into the sacred area reserved for the Jews. Both of those charges were false, but those are the charges that these Asian Jews brought against Paul in the temple area, and a riot ensued. People there hated Paul, could not stand him. They wanted to tear Paul to pieces. And so the Romans, they don't know what's going on. Okay, they don't know why this riot is happening, why this dissension is breaking out. And so they take Paul and save him from the crowd, and they take him 
to this Roman fortress which was right outside the temple compound. And they took him there for his own safety. And so as we heard last week, Paul asked Claudius Lysias if he could address the crowd. Claudius Lysias allowed him to address the crowd. So he's speaking to thousands of Jews, okay? And he's giving his testimony. And when he gets to the spot in his testimony that Jesus commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, they went totally berserk. They were enraged that Paul would take their religion to the Gentile lands. And it was so bad, Claudius Lysias had to stop this. He took Paul back into the barracks. And Claudius Lysias, his head is spinning. He has no idea why these people are going crazy. And so what he does, the next morning, Claudius Lysias, he hastily convenes a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council. This is the Jewish high court, the supreme court, to try to figure out what's going on. Claudius Lysias had one job. His job was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Peaceful provinces, orderly provinces, they paid their taxes, okay? If areas got out of control, unrest would ensue, Rome couldn't get their tax revenue. So let me tell you something, there was a lot of pressure on Claudius Lysias to figure out what's going on and find out the remedy, okay? Let's look at verse 3. I'm sorry, 23, verse 1. He calls for this meeting. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, this is the group that Claudius Lysias has convened to, to dialogue with Paul, and Claudius Lysias is there. He's listening to every word, trying to figure out what's going on. Paul said to the group, to the Jewish Sanhedrin, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I mean, think about this. It's been 25 years since Paul has been able to speak to his peers. 25 years since he's spoken with these men. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. There is anger, there is animus, there is rage. These Jewish high council members, they knew exactly who Saul of Tarsus was. They knew that at one time he was one of the most promising Pharisees that had come along in years. They knew he had studied under Gamaliel, who was arguably the most significant rabbi of their generation. They knew that he had gone out with extradition papers seeking to persecute and bring Christians back to Jerusalem for trial when all of a sudden Paul's life changed on a dime. And he went from being the rising star of the party of the Sanhedrin to their worst nightmare. He went from persecuting Christians to proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. So he was known to them as Saul. He was the ultimate traitor to the Jews. So how dare he say that he's lived his life in good conscience before God? That was blasphemy to Ananias. That's why the high priest had him struck because in his mind Paul is guilty you know we just need to like skip all this and get to the sentencing okay that's what they wanted to do Paul needed to be killed and held accountable verse 3 
Then Paul said to him, like in response to being struck, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Obviously, this didn't go over well with Paul. The text implies that he may have been struck repeatedly. Okay? A whitewashed wall, as you know, as the term would denote, it is something that looks good on the outside, but it is corrupt and rotten on the inside. It looks good. Like, this is like a metaphor for Judaism. It looks good, but the core of it is obsolete. The core of it is, is, is rotten. So he calls him a whitewashed wall. Okay, it's the equivalent of calling the high priest of Israel a hypocrite. Paul says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck... Paul studied under Gamaliel. He had memorized every word of the Torah. He knew that what the high priest ordered was illegal. The trial hadn't gone on. The charges had not been established. And yet the high priest had Paul struck, which was illegal. And so Paul knows that. So he calls him out on it. Verse 4. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's priest? They couldn't believe that he was talking back to the high priest. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul had not been back to Jerusalem in years. Paul did not know who the current high priest was. He would have never seen Ananias before, probably. And the meeting was so hastily convened that everybody was wearing maybe their more informal garb. There was nothing to mark out Ananias is the high priest. They all look the same. So Paul didn't know. Now, a number of scholars question, why did Paul apologize to the high priest? Like, just reading this, I can't stand the high priest, okay? The reader is very sympathetic with Paul. Like, this guy, he should have knocked him out, the high priest. Why did Paul apologize when the high priest was clearly in the wrong? Paul's going out of his way. He's going out of his way to establish that he, Paul, he is the law-abiding Jew. He is the one who is being faithful to the Old Testament promises, prophecies, laws. He's the true messianic Jew. Okay? The Sanhedrin and the high priest, they're part of a bankrupt institution. Okay, the Sanhedrin at this point was the very definition of a whitewashed wall, something that looked good on the outside, obsolete, corrupt, decaying from within. Now, here's where Paul's quick thinking comes into play. This is so exciting. This is such an amazing portion of Scripture. So Paul, he realizes he's in a bad way, okay? He's in a very bad way here. He's in a very precarious situation. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Pharisees and the other... I'm sorry, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council. This is genius. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension rose. That's an understatement. Between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. Luke provides an explanatory note. For Sadducees, they say there is no resurrection. 
nor angel, nor spirit. But Pharisees, you see, they acknowledge them all. Paul should win an award for quick thinking here. His life was on the line, like literally his life was on the line. If the council had come to the conclusion that he was guilty, they could have levied on him the penalty of capital punishment and handed him over to the Romans just like they did with the Lord Jesus years before. His life is on the line. They want him dead. We'll see later. That much is crystal clear. Something had to happen, and it had to happen quick. Paul, of all people, was intimately familiar with the two kinds of people that were there in this meeting. Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees are like religious conservatives. Okay? And we should be... And, and the Sadducees were theological liberals. And in our background, in the Presbyterian Church, back in the 60s, you could have meetings. You could have had a general assembly of the Presbyterian Church where you had religious conservatives, people like us, who believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he was born of a virgin, that he's returning again in power and glory, okay, who believe in the supernatural claims of the Bible. And then you had a whole group of ordained ministers in that denomination who denied the supernatural, who denied the virgin birth, who denied the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, denied vast portions of the Bible. Our forefathers were all together at General Assembly. This is nothing new. Okay, so the Sanhedrin was composed of both. Pharisees, biblical conservatives, Sadducees, theological liberals. Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, life after death, angels, the supernatural. Sadducees did not. Here's what's amazing. Paul should have been a lawyer. I guess he kind of was, in a sense, when he was a Pharisee. He knew in him instantly. He got to the root of the charges that were levied against him. Why were they really upset with Paul? What was all of this about at its core? All of this at its core, when you reduced it to the very basis, it was an issue related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changed his life. It was the literal, bodily, resurrected Christ that saved his life and commissioned him as an apostle to the Gentiles. So at its core, it wasn't about Paul teaching people to forsake the customs of the Jews. It had nothing to do with Trophimus in the temple. It was all about resurrection. And Paul knew that. He also knew that there was a good chance that that could cause these groups to turn on each other, which they did in a big way, in a fantastic way. Look at verse 9. To say that his plan worked well would be an understatement. Think of what he got the Pharisees to do. These are unbelieving Pharisees. These are Pharisees that came to this meeting wanting to stick it to Paul. By the end of the meeting, they're defending him. By the end of the meeting, they're saying in front of Claudius Lysias, we find nothing wrong with this man. That's incredible. Look at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees 
The parties stood up and contended sharply. They start arguing with each other. <laughs> Listen to what they say. We find nothing wrong in this man. Paul's like, could you just repeat that loudly before everybody? We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? <laughs> Look at verse 10. When the dissension became violent, like in that culture, okay, we're about two steps from violence, okay? And so there was about to be a massive fist fight in this Jewish tribunal. The dissension became violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him in to the barracks. I mean, that is incredible. He goes from being a dead man to being defended by the Pharisees and taken back into protective custody in the barracks. That is incredible. Look at verse 11. The following night. I'm sure Paul's head is spinning. The following night, the Lord, this is Jesus, following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Why did he say that? Paul was absolutely afraid. He did not know what was going on. He needed encouragement. Jesus said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Things are becoming more clear by the moment. The God of the Bible is going to use the apparatus of the Roman government to get Paul safely to Rome where he will testify about the gospel of the grace of God before Caesar himself. At his conversion, Jesus said to Paul, you will testify before kings and rulers of the Gentiles. Had Paul not been arrested, had all of this not happened, he would have never had an audience before the kings and the rulers of the Gentiles. Every bit of this was an outworking of the providence of God Almighty. And as our confession of faith, the Heidelberg Catechism says beautifully, it reiterates, the providence of God means that things happen not by chance or by luck, but are the outworking of God's fatherly hands? It says in the Heidelberg Catechism, food and drink, like barren years and good years, meaning good times and extremely unspeakably difficult times are no less the providence of God than the wonderful things that happen. And the Lord Jesus is encouraging Paul and fortifying Paul that we've got a lot left here are many chapters left in your book, Paul. Now, as amazing as that providence is, you ain't seen nothing yet. What you're about to read is one of the most incredible things that happens in the New Testament. Look at panel five. Go to panel five in your bulletin. This is the rest of the story, as they say. So kind of behind the scenes, Luke doesn't tell us, but I mean like, so when they take Paul out of there and take him back to the barracks, like things didn't go well in the Jewish, like the Sanhedrin meeting, like there were probably a lot of broken teeth, bloodied noses, things like that. They're really upset with Paul and that he's not been given over to them. Okay, so chapter 23, 
verses 12 through 24. So when it's day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath. So this is happening later in the day. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath. Do you understand how serious the Jews took oaths before God Almighty? These Jews bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. In other words, I will die. I will sooner die by starvation than see this man live. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to touch food until I have killed him. This was as serious as it got, verse 13. There were more than 40. Can you believe that? More than 40 who made this conspiracy. And notice, Sanhedrin loves it. They go right along with it. These were the law keepers of Israel, and they are cooperating with this conspiracy. This is the embodiment of the fact that they were whitewashed walls. They went to the chief priests, these conspirators, and the elders, and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you. In other words, you set up a meeting, the pretense of a meeting, as though you're going to determine his case more exactly. You know, act like you want to talk with him some more. And when he's brought, when he's on his way, we are ready to kill him before he becomes near. And were it not for the amazing confluence of events we're about to read, Paul would have been a dead man. He would have been a dead man, apart from the things we're about to read. We wouldn't have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. We wouldn't have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. We wouldn't have any of these things if the following did not happen. Of all people, Paul's nephew comes to help. We didn't know before Acts that Paul had a sister or a nephew. It's amazing. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, meaning Paul's nephew, of course, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul about this conspiracy. Verse 17, Paul then called one of the centurions and said, take this young man. So the Greek word there for young man, probably a man between 20 and 30 years old. Paul called one of the centurions, said, take this man. He doesn't tell him he's his nephew. Take this young man to the tribune, to Claudius Lysias, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought Paul's nephew to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to tell you. The tribune took him, notice this, by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. Do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, very serious, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour 
of the night, meaning at 9 p.m., also provide mounts, provide a horse for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the, co the governor. And I know we're running short on time. This is incredible. This is an extraordinary providence of God of all the people that could have gotten word of this plot. It's Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew. Think about this. We don't know that Paul's nephew, who would have been between 20 and 30, we don't know that he was a Pharisee or connected to the Pharisees, but it would have been likely that he would have been connected to the Pharisees. Paul called himself the son of Pharisees. He said he wasn't just a Pharisee. He's a son of Pharisees. This was probably part of his family heritage. This young man would have been connected to the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees say about Paul at their meeting? We find nothing wrong with this man. Because his nephew was probably connected to the Pharisees, it would have been less likely that his nephew would have heard about this. Because Ananias was most likely a Sadducee. They wanted Paul dead. They would not have told the Pharisees. How did Paul's nephew know about this? It's incredible. Also, don't sleep on the fact. Don't take it for granted for one moment that the nephew would have been for Paul. What does Paul say in Philippians 3? In Philippians 3, Paul says about himself, I have lost all things for the sake of the gospel. All things. Meaning his position, his place, most scholars think that's also referring to his family. That his conversion to the Lord Jesus cost him everything. It is very likely that Paul would have been excommunicated from his family after his conversion. Okay? Paul had brought great shame on his family. So I don't take it for granted at all that his nephew would have been for him. Yet not only was he there, not only did he hear about it, but he communicates this to Paul and the Romans. It, it, is, it is just incredible. All right, no rest is incredible. I'm, I know this is long, I'm sorry, but it's so exciting. For a minister, this is as good as it gets, people. So wake up, drink coffee, we're almost done. But think about this. Be wowed by the Bible. Not only is Paul's nephew there, he hears about it, okay? He has access somehow to the Jews. He's also got access to the Romans. He's just allowed to go in and talk with Paul freely. Who was it that was trying to kill Paul? The Jews. How was it that they let Paul, this nephew just walk on in and talk to Paul? They didn't know it was his nephew. So somehow, maybe through who his mother married, this man is positioned to walk into this, this Roman fortress and he has immediate audience with Paul. It's fair to say this nephew was the right person at the right time with the right connections and the right place with the right amount of courage because you better know his life was on the line. When this all went bad and when Paul was spirited out to Caesarea the next day, what do you think those assassins were going to try to figure out? They were going to try to figure out who the leak was. And they would use all the means at their disposal. You better know this nephew was a marked man. He was risking everything to tell this to Paul. And last but not least, Claudius Lysias believed him. 
somehow this young man had the credibility for the Roman guard to invest the following in saving Paul. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and a horse for Paul to ride. Would you agree that the Lord Jesus was intimately directing the affairs of Paul's life down to every detail? You know what's amazing and you know what's humbling? He's no less at work in your life or mine, not only in the good things, but also in the incredibly difficult things. We learn in the Old Testament that God uses difficult things for good. He's using Paul's arrest and imprisonment to put him in position to write these letters if he would have died this night. We wouldn't know all the things we know about how the church should be ordered from First and Second Timothy and Titus. The book of Ephesians has the clearest articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ ever written anywhere. The book of Colossians tells us more about the person and work of Jesus than we get anywhere else. We learn about this amazing truth like Onesimus' conversion. Onesimus, this, this slave, was saved because he was able to meet Paul later in life. Beloved, God's at work. He's at work in the big things. He's at work in the small things. He's at work in the wonderful things. He's at work in the difficult things. You see, here what we have, we just have a behind-the-scenes view, right? We just have a behind-the-scenes view. If there was a book of the Bible about your life, okay, there would be a behind-the-scenes view where God said, oh, I loved you. I loved you so, not, so much I told you no. I loved you so much that I brought this incredibly difficult thing in your life, not for you, but for your great-grandchild or your great-great-grandchildren. He is weaving together this tapestry that one day will boggle our imagination about how he used all these events for the good of his people. Beloved, what a great day that's going to be. So what's the point here? Trust him. Trust him. Not just in the good times. Trust him in the difficult times that if he can do this, and he can work out these details. He can work out the details of your life and mine. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we just don't have the time. We haven't even, even scratched the surface of all the details of this text of, of how you, our Trinitarian God, is, is working out all these things in history, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the ways that you are using Paul and others to, to, to proliferate your church all over the known World, We thank you for this incredible mechanism you used to get this, this obscure Jewish Pharisee change his life through the Lord Jesus and put him before Caesar. Father, convince us, reiterate to us that you are working in our life just as much in ways that are just as significant and profound and intimate. Lord Jesus, we love you. Give us opportunities to praise you like you did for Paul. In his matchless name we pray, amen and amen.